Well, if you have your Bible, I would invite you to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Ecclesiastes chapter 6, we're going to be studying this whole chapter together. And I've titled this, uh, The Danger of Materialism Concluded. So we've been looking at, uh, uh, well, the, the writer here, uh, Solomon, has been showing us the dangers that are inherent in materialism. And so that's what we're going to be discussing today again. Ecclesiastes chapter 6. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children who lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? What does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? Who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? What is the value of a human being? The value of a person in the Christian worldview is, and I hope you already have already know this, and it's been continually established, but. The value of a person in the Christian worldview is not determined by the amount of his or her wealth. God does not have more regard for those who are rich, nor does he have more regard for those who are poor. Wealth, or the lack thereof, is not the rubric which determines our value before God. The value of human beings are found in their having been made in the image of God. Uh, An illustration of this is found, I think, in the Sabbath principle. You see, men and women are not just worker bees. And, And what is it that worker bees do? They spend all day, every day of their life, working and serving the queen of the hive. 
their value is found in what they make and acquire for the good of the high. But this is not the case for you and I. Our whole lives are not dedicated to work and production day in and day out, seven days a week, only producing and making. No, we reflect our Creator. The creation pattern that we are called to follow is that six days of labor and then one day of rest. This pattern was set not because God needed rest. It's not like God needed to slumber. But rather it was a pattern for us to follow because it turns out that we do need rest. You see, being made in God's image gives us value. We are different from the rest of creation. And that value is illustrated in part in the Sabbath, which is a gift to mankind, the gift of rest. And so there should be no confusion between wealth and mortal worth. Our value is not found in our acquiring more wealth or in what we produce, though these things can be good, but our value is found in our being image bearers, bearing the image of our Creator. Well, over the course of the past few weeks, we've been looking at worship, we've been looking at wealth. In chapter 5, we were told to guard our way as we come before the Lord. The problem is, of course, that we're so easily distracted by what the world offers. And a person of wealth, Kohelet reminds us, is a man of great worry. In chapter 5, verse 12, he says, Sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Those who have much have much more to worry about. Further, chasing after money will bring no satisfaction. For there is never enough to add to what you already have. In chapter 5, verse 10, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. You see, there's not going to be satisfaction. You can continue to chase these things, but you'll never be satisfied with what you get. Satisfaction is not found in money or things, but is found in seeking the face of the Lord. And so now we come to chapter 6, and Solomon continues to discuss with us this issue of wealth. Now, for his part, Solomon, we know, was a very, very wealthy man. He had much. We know this from the biblical record. We can read this about this in 1 Kings chapter 4. Listen to verses 22 through 27. 1 Kings 4. It says this, Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. For he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates, from Tipsha to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates. And he had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety, from Dan even to, to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots, 12,000 horsemen. And those officers supplied provisions for King Solomon and for all who came to King Solomon's table, each one in his month, 
They let nothing be lacking. So Solomon was the wealthiest man of his time. He had all that a person could desire and then some. I mean, imagine this. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour. A core, by the way, is about six bushels or 220 liters. So that's 180 bushels of flour for one day. That's just one day. That's a lot of flour. And he had 10 fat oxen. I assume that is slaughtered for food. One day. 20 pasture-fed cattle. And then he had a variety of other animals for one day. That's a lot of food to feed his household and all of his army and all that he owned and managed. So he had all these cattle, the sheep. He had all this meal and flour. And then he even had 40,000 stalls of horses. 12,000 horsemen. I mean, imagine this, right? Do you think Solomon had a little bit of something going, right? Like, do you think he had a little bit of wealth? In addition to all of the wealth that he had, he had peace on every side. He ruled uh, a... a, uh, well, the largest area that Israel had ever ruled, I mean, he certainly had even more than David had. That, of course, doesn't last long after him. But uh, no one who was attached to his household lacked anything. Anybody, uh, they took turns every month being at his table. Everybody ate. Everybody had food. Everybody was doing well. Solomon was the richest man, and he shared with all around him. So if you think about Solomon, who could understand wealth better than him? Who else could understand the dangers of wealth? And so here's what Solomon says here in chapter 6. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all he desires. So he's talking about himself, right? I mean, who else can say that they have, God has given so much and lacks nothing? Then he says this, Yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. He says, This is a vanity. It is a grievous evil. And so that brings up a question. Why would God give so much blessing and yet not give the power for one to enjoy it? These verses are, Martin Luther had said, was a, quote, description of a rich man who lacked nothing for a good and happy life and yet does not have one. He has all that he could ask for and more he, he has what, you know, we, we think if we just would have more, I could just really enjoy my life, right? If only I had a larger bank account, a, a newer car, or, you know, whatever, right? 40,000 stalls of horses. Then, then my life would be so good. Oh, right? And yet, for Solomon... He says, you have all of this, 
And he still doesn't have a happy life. He still doesn't feel satisfaction. Unlike the man described at the end of chapter 5, who lost his wealth due to a bad investment, or uh, someone who maybe was oppressed by the government who took all that he had, this man still has all. He has riches and honor. He lacks nothing that a person could want, and yet he finds himself completely and totally, utterly unsatisfied. The man had acquisition without satisfaction. And like the man in chapter 5, in the end, he too lost everything. And what he had gained still goes to someone else. Remember in chapter 5, he, we had seen this one who had, who had all this, but then lost it all. Well, ultimately, even the guy who doesn't lose it all ends up losing it all, too, right? What he had gained went to someone else. Now, why is this? Well, we don't really know all the details. What we do know is that our possessions can never bring us lasting joy. The gifts that God gives us, the power to enjoy these gifts, comes separately. This is why having more money can never guarantee that we will find enjoyment. Have you ever found that there's something that you really want? And maybe you... Uh, I, I just think about my own children sometimes, because they make good illustrations. But even in my own life, you know, there's, there's like that thing, that toy, that, that widget you want. And you think, you know, my life would just be so much better... If I had that thing, right? And then you get it. And then it's, it's awesome for about a day, right? Then you're like, how did I spend the money on this? This wasn't everything I, I had hoped it would be, right? This isn't satisfying me, right? How many of you had that experience? Come on, like all of us at some point or other to some degree or other, and then sometimes we think, yeah, the problem was that, but you know, if I had this other, right? But you never, it never ends. Real joy doesn't come from those things, those widgets, whatever it may be. Real joy comes from the Lord. The fear of the Lord is not just the beginning of knowledge, it is also the source of true satisfaction. So if satisfaction is not guaranteed, then perhaps... Solomon suggests, maybe we would just be better off dead. This is a dark possibility that he considers next. Look at verse, starting at verse 3. He says, if a man fathers a hundred children, and Solomon had a lot of wives, so he could still be talking about himself, right? A man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but... His soul is not satisfied with life's good things. And he also has no burial. Right? So he has all of these children. And you have this picture of this man who has all of this and he dies. And then they don't even take the time to bury the guy. Right? It's kind of messed up. Right? What does he say? He says, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. Wow. Now, some of you have experienced a stillborn child. That is a very painful thing as a parent to go through. Uh, 
Sarah and I actually went through that about a year before Gracie was born. I can't imagine the idea that somehow that's better. And yet that's just what he's saying. He says, For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. So, you have this one who has had all of the, what we would think of as worldly satisfactions, worldly things, children, wealth, acquisition, and yet finding no satisfaction. And he's saying, you know, this one who never had anything, who didn't even get the chance to be born, is better off because they're at least at rest. Why would it be, be that a stillborn is better off than a man who is dissatisfied with life's things? And here you have this man who had all the world had to offer, riches, a hundred children, a long life. In fact, Solomon even says the guy lived 2,000 years, right? He's obviously not talking to himself. He's just giving an example now. Yet the man is not satisfied, and one can presume the reason is that he did not have God in his life. Notice that it says his soul was not satisfied. There's a hole in his life. Something was missing spiritually. And, and sadly, when he, was, when he died, he's not buried. And we don't know why. We don't know why it is that he wasn't buried. Perhaps he died in a war. Perhaps he died at sea. Or perhaps... He was despised by his own children. Whatever the case is, the fact is that he remains unburied at death and would have led people to believe that he was cursed by God. You see, a person by ancient terms can have children by the dozens and life by the thousands and yet still depart unnoticed, unlamented, and unfulfilled. So as the preacher considers this hypothetical person, he entertains this thought of a non-existence, or at the very least a non-birth. If a person can have all that there is to offer in life and still be unhappy with life, then perhaps, he suggests, he would be better off never having lived. The strange blessedness of the stillborn child. It comes in vanity as the delivery is fruitless, goes in darkness, is covered in darkness, yet never having seen the sun. The child comes having never been known, having never been named, and yet the child finds rest. Perhaps it's better to have been miscarried at birth than to miscarry throughout your life. The stillborn never had to endure the pain and see the suffering, experience the guilt, struggle with sin. And best of all, the child is the first to die and therefore the, to, the first to enter into his eternal rest. A man can live for a thousand years times two and yet come to the same end as that stillborn. You see, death is the great leveler, isn't it? No matter how long we live, the fact remains that we all die. 
And so, is Kohelet right? Does he have a point? It's a, very, it's a very sobering point that he's making, but is he right about this? Now remember that for the moment that the preacher is showing us life under the sun. He's showing us life without God in the equation. For the man who does not follow after the Lord, it does perhaps seem that having not been born at all is better. This is what life under the sun looks like, right? It's not pleasant. You can't really make good sense of it. But we know that there is more to life than just an eventual death, don't we? For there is life after death. You see, we look to the promises of God. Jesus proves this when he rose again from the dead, bringing the light of the resurrection out of the darkness of the grave. When believers are buried, and when they bury their children, it is always in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection which is yet to come for believers. So here's the point. No matter how long we live and how much we acquire in this life, it is meaningless unless we can enjoy it, which can never do unless we give, are given the power to do so by God. Our satisfaction that is not found in things of this world, but in God who is blessing us with what it is that we have. Verse 7, he continues, all the toil of man is for his mouth, and yet his appetite is not satisfied. Then he asks this question in verse 8, for what advantage has the wise man over the fool, and what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is a vanity and a striving after wind. Well, again, uh, Solomon, Solomon's dissatisfaction returns. In the first two verses, he had talked about a man who had everything in life except enjoyment of those things. In verses 3 through 6, he argued that we cannot enjoy life, if we cannot enjoy life, then perhaps we would have been better off not ever having been born. Now he wonders if we'll ever be satisfied. He says all of the toil of man is for his mouth. All of that hard work is just, just so you can consume All of us have longings. All of us have cravings. And and what happens when we feed those cravings? You ever crave like a certain candy bar, and then you eat it, and then you're like, man, I wish I had another one of those, right? Sometimes you end up and you keep feeding the cravings, right? The problem with feeding cravings is you want more. You crave more. So what's the solution? 
Well, he says, well, may, maybe it's wisdom. Verse 8, for what advantage has the wise man over the fool? How about simply living in poverty? Maybe that's the answer. Just don't, don't even try to acquire anything, right? Perhaps poverty is the answer. Perhaps having nothing will take away the urge to have much. And what, and what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Solomon gives us the solution to the questions posed in verse 8. In verse 9, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. We think that perhaps we can find satisfaction in everything life has to offer, whether it be food and drink, whether it be music and beauty, whether it be family and friends. And yet, desire is a tramp. It's a wanderer. It's like your your desires are like the this one wandering, never content to stay at home, desiring all desire always wants to be out wandering. This is the picture that Kohel is painting for us as he talks of the wandering of the appetites. Looking around, wandering, never never content, always searching out. This is the the wanderlust of the soul. Better to be content with what lies before us than to wander looking for something else. And strangely, he calls this vanity and striving after wind. In verse 10, then, he continues, whatever has come to be already has been named, and it is known what man is, and he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his, and then look, listen to what he says, his vain life. He's not seeing life in a very good light at this point, is he? Who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Well, Solomon returns again that there is nothing new under the sun. Life is the same old, same old, and then you die. Isn't that encouraging? Everything has been cataloged. Everything has been categorized. The human condition is what it is since the fall of Adam in the garden. There is nothing to dispute. There is nothing to debate. Solomon is piling on the complaints of the futility of life. That's what he's doing. Here it is. Here's the stark reality. What else is there to say? Everything has been named in accordance with its true character. And this includes man who comes from dust. Humans like to make a name for themselves. But we already possess one. And it is a name that signifies weakness in the face of the almighty creator God. No one can contend with God. Job found that out, right? You can't contend with God. So what's the point of multiplying words? That's the question. K 
can we change reality? And so here's the question that Solomon asks. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? Who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Solomon asks this question. And maybe at first it seems unanswerable, right? You almost get this picture of kind of throwing the hands up in the air. Who, who, who knows what's good for man? But we know the answer, don't we? Right? God does. That's the answer. God knows what's good for man. It is God who knows what will be after man. Remember, Solomon is taking us on this journey, investigating life under the sun. And you know what life under the sun without God is? It's depressing. It's stark, the stark reality of life. It's the part of life that you'd rather not deal with. And yet it is, right? But we have the answer. You see, in many ways, this is one of, one of the most depressing sections of Ecclesiastes. It actually makes it hard to teach because you feel like you just kind of leave people depressed. If you have to, you have to sit there and think, yeah, that this is kind of life is life. It stinks, man. I don't really like some parts of life sometimes. This is a depressing section. It also marks the middle of the book. We're halfway there. Remember, chapter 12 is where he finally gets to where he wants us to get to. So we're halfway there. We're in the middle of the book. And what the preacher has discovered is that life without God is meaningless and vain. And that's true. Without God, there really is not a lot of purpose to life, not a lot of point to life. People can't understand. They don't even know who they are. A person can find no satisfaction. It's like that 60s song, right? Can't get no satisfaction. Gaining more and more will do a person no good. We don't have the choice to not have been born. Because here's the reality. Y'all have been born already. Right? Some of you have been born a while ago. You don't have the choice of not been born. And you can't be wandering around seeking to quench your hunger and your cravings. That's not going to do any good either. You're not going to find any satisfaction there. Life is what it is, and arguing with God about it will do no good either. Again, Job found that out. Without God, the world can only see life as a big joke and without meaning. This is where it seems like Solomon has become a nihilist, right? It's just depressing. Without God, it seems like all of this could be true. But here's the thing, it's not true. When we live our lives worshiping and enjoying our creator, then all of life has meaning. We don't have to wander around looking for satisfaction. 
The, the wander lust of our soul has been satisfied. The world has nothing to offer to us because there, that satisfaction does not come with a satisfaction guarantee. But in Christ, we have been made new creatures. We have purpose and value in him. And we can look at the world and not be consumed by it because our affections are elsewhere. We have a future hope. Jesus said he will prepare a place for us in the presence of his Father. The way to be blessed, the way to have a happy life is simply to trust and to rest. In the Lord Jesus Christ. As I end, I want to read to you from Revelation chapter 21. And the Apostle John writes this Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he was seated on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Beloved, this is what you are looking forward to. This is the promise of the scriptures that God will be our God eternally. That death will be no more. That sorrow will be no more. That God himself will dwell with us as his, we will be his people. He will dwell with us. He will be our God. And this one who loves us will comfort us. That all things will be new. How wonderful. And as you think about those promises, you know, often we don't think about Revelation having promises, yet yet here, here is this fantastic promise. As you think about the promises of Scripture and the reality of who you are in Christ, my question is, for you and for myself, then why are we looking for satisfaction in the world? When you already are fulfilled, in Christ. You have a future hope. Trust and rest in your Redeemer. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, this lesson from Ecclesiastes. We admit that this is a difficult section, that as we investigate life under the sun, that in some ways, many ways, it's very depressing, and yet we know the rest of the matter. We, we know where Solomon is taking us on this journey. 
And we have already seen and tasted that you are good. That we've, we've, we've been given a glimpse of, the, of the, the glories which are to come. So, Father, our prayer is that you would help us to not seek satisfaction in this world, life under the sun, but that we would seek satisfaction in our Savior, even Jesus Christ, who came into this world to die for sinners such as us, who has, is now preparing a place where we can dwell eternally in the presence of the triune God. We thank you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.